Our Bible reading this morning comes from Luke 5, verses 17 through 26. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asks, asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is God's word. Thank you, Jessica. Um, <clears throat> we are not in a, a series on books of the Bible right now. Uh, we just completed a series on objections to the faith, and this summer we're we're kind of doing. Uh, oh, look at that! This summer we're uh, we're we're sort of doing one. I don't know. You call them one-offs, I suppose, so to speak. And uh, this morning. Uh, we're looking here in, uh, in the gospel according to Luke. When Jesus began his public ministry, in Luke chapter 4, we record that at the start of that public ministry, in his hometown of Nazareth, he went to the synagogue. He takes uh, a scroll from the Old Testament, book of Isaiah, prophecy of Isaiah, and he opens it to a particular part of that book, and he sits down, in it, or he stands there, and he reads to the people in the synagogue, he reads these words. This is Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19, quoting Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down in very dramatic fashion. He sits down, everybody's eyes are fixed on him, and he says, today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Boom, right? In our day, you drop the mic. That's funny. Um, anyhow, what Jesus was saying when he made that dramatic statement was that he was a savior, that he had come to save his people. He had come to bring them freedom. They were oppressed. They were in chains. They were slaves. He was going to free them. And he was not the first one to do that. There were other messiahs. This is the 
Old Testament term for the Savior who had come to free his people. There were other messiahs or pretenders to the messiahship who had come along and said that they had come to do this. People had been reading the Old Testament over and over and over again for many, many hundreds of years looking at these prophecies of the messiah who was to come. And so they were expecting a messiah. The thing was, was that people had sort of a, what, he was come to do, what he had come to do. They were expecting kind of a national Messiah, some, some political figure who was going to throw off the Roman oppressors. He was going to restore the kingdom of David that had existed many centuries ago and usher in this new era of Israelites or, or Jewish self-rule and hopefully world influence and glory. That's what people were expecting. The problem was, was that that definition of the Savior and that expectation of what the Savior was coming to do was very shallow and very narrow. It was kind of one-dimensional. It had this political aspect to it, and that was kind of all there was to it. And so Jesus, after in Luke chapter 4, making this dramatic statement that He is indeed that Savior who has come to change the world, in Luke chapter 5, He begins to show how the salvation that He has come to bring is far deeper, far more multidimensional, far broader than the people had ever expected. And He, he shows that the extent, the scope of His salvation is, is way beyond what they expected through interactions with different people. And one of those interactions is right here in verses 17 to 26, this uh, story of Jesus interacting with the paralytic. But of course, he's not just interacting with the paralytic, he's interacting with the friends of the paralytic and of course, the family together. And uh, you can follow uh, the outline, you can see it in the back of your bulletin if you would like. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? As the Savior, as the Messiah, what was His purpose? That's what we're going to explore together. Three things we're going to see. We're going to see the nature slash character of Jesus. We're going to see the mission of Jesus. We're going to see the tenderness of Jesus. And then we're going to make one application, kind of a corporate uh, application, community application right at the end. So here we go. Nature, mission, tenderness. Number one, the nature. Let's set the stage, okay? Look at verse 17 again, if you're looking in your bulletin or you have a Bible open. In verse 17, it says, One day, he, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. Okay, this is actually not insignificant. Okay, this is really important. Here's the scene. Jesus is in this town. He's in this house and he's preaching away, but it says that Pharisees and teachers of the law have come from all over the place to this, this house where Jesus was teaching, and they're sitting there. The Pharisees were a sect of the Jewish people, and they were considered the, the religious leaders who had a hardcore devotion to God. You had your nominal Jews, you know, I'm a, I'm a Jew, I'm a, I'm a cultural Jew, I was raised Jewish. I live in a Jewish country. I do Jewish things. But they didn't really religiously practice, although it was kind of hard not to on some level in a culture like that. But the Pharisees, they were the hardcores. They were the true believers. They were the serious law keepers. And they were the leaders of the communities. Okay, back then, religious leaders were also political social leaders in communities. And so people looked to them for guidance upon how they should 
live their lives, how they should behave, how they should conduct themselves as a society, etc. And there weren't like, they weren't like everywhere. There were only a few thousand of them in Palestine at the time. So these Pharisees and teachers of the law who have come from different places to sit in this house, they're an official delegation, you see. They are here to evaluate Jesus. They're here to sit in judgment upon Jesus. That's why it actually says they're sitting. That was a, a form of judgment at the time. When you sat, you were a judge, okay? And everybody else is standing around. So there's Jesus teaching, the Pharisees are there. And then it also says in verse 17, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal. Okay. Have you ever been in, in a public forum or a public context where there's, there's an energy in that public space with this crowd of people and, and you can just feel like something's going to happen? Do you get what I'm saying? Like something's going down. That's what's going on here something's going down. You've got the Pharisees sitting there very sternly. You've got Jesus across the room from them preaching authoritatively. You've got the Holy Spirit in this place in power and Jesus is healing people uh, uh, miraculously. Something is going to happen. Something's going to fall. Something's, something's going down. And so the story continues. Jesus is teaching and then all of a sudden dirt falls from the ceiling and everybody looks up. It gets kind of quiet because the dirt's falling from the ceiling. They look up and they hear like muffled voices and they hear some sort of clomp, clomp, clomp on the ceiling. And it turns out that there's some guys up there. In the midst of this thing that's happening here, all of a sudden there's these guys there and, and, and now more dirt starts falling and, and you hear digging happening. What you need to understand is, is that in those days, uh, roofs were, were like two feet thick and they had wood on them and they had... Uh, leaves and stuff on them, and then they had a lot of dirt on them. People spent a fair amount of time back in Palestine, this is pre-air conditioning, okay, uh, on their roofs, especially in the evening when it was cool, in the summertime, in the hot season. And so these guys are, are, are working really hard at digging, ex they're, they're basically excavating this roof, and a hole appears in the roof, and then all of a sudden this, this mattress or mat probably more like a, a mat, sort of like, uh, you know, like Aladdin's flying carpet kind of mat kind of thing, comes down, and there's this guy lying on it, and when he hits the floor, everybody looks at him, and then they look up at where he came from, and Mark tells us anyway that the four friends, you know, their heads poke through the hole, and so everybody's going like this, okay? Here's the scene. Jesus very quickly discerns what's going on. He sees the guy doesn't move an inch. He sees that these guys are obviously trying to get him, get this paralyzed guy to him. So he, he understands that they have a tremendous amount of faith or trust in his ability to heal. And so he looks at the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now there's two reactions, two groups of people reacting to that in this story, basically. You've got the, the reaction of the friends and you've got the reaction, throw in on the, the reaction of the Pharisees. They hear Jesus look at this paralytic and say, your sins are forgiven. And what do they say? It says in verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, who does this guy think he is? Now, remember we said 
they're sitting in judgment on Jesus. They, so far, they're judging correctly. They're right to ask this question. Who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And they're absolutely right. Because think about this. If I walk up to Reuben and I give him a good bright cross in the face and Jamie says to me, Paul, you shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. But I forgive you. Reuben is going to look at Jamie and go, uh, excuse me, but the sin, the offense was committed against me. It is my prerogative to uh, forgive or not forgive. It's not your prerogative. He didn't do it to you. Now, you might say, well, they're married, so the two are one, blah, blah, blah. But you don't, like, read too much into my illustration, okay? The point is this. If you're the one who's been sinned against and offended, you're the one who has the right to forgive, right? And here's Jesus looking at this guy and saying, you can forgive sin, or he, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 no. Only God is allowed to do that. Only the person who has been offended is allowed to do that. And Jesus is saying, look, every sin that is committed is ultimately against me. Think about this. You lie... Jesus is saying, you break one of my commandments. You abuse another person, you trample upon another person, you degrade their humanity, you treat them poorly, you ignore them. That is an offense against me. Because you see, everything is my creation. Kids, you work really hard building a nice house out of Lego. And your brother comes along and kicks it over and breaks your Lego house. Does your brother say, or should your brother say, to the house, oh, I'm sorry? Or do they say to you, should they say to you, your house? They should say it to you, right? Because you're the one who made the house. You're the creator of the house. You're the maker of the house. Well, in the same way, Jesus is saying, I am the maker of everything. All sin is ultimately against me because all sin is somehow a violation of my creation. When you wrong another person, when you degradate the environment, when you cheat people in business, these are all ultimately offenses against me because they're offenses against my creation. I'm God. That's what he's saying. Whoa. Whoa. Jesus was a man. Yes, but he was not a man like I am a man. He's not a man like any of the men in this room. He is a different kind of man. You notice in verse 24, he uses this term. He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He uses this term to describe himself, Son of Man. And what's that all about? Well, he's not saying, I'm a guy. He's referring, actually, to an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Daniel. And there's a place in Daniel chapter 7 where it says this, in verse 13. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And it's a prophecy about this figure called Son of Man, 
who approaches God, the Creator, Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, to receive His kingdom, which is all of the universe. And Jesus is identifying Himself as that. He's saying, that's me. I'm the Son of Man. And then, in verse 24, it says that, that you may know uh, that I have the authority to forgive sins. He says to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. In other words, to prove that he's the Son of Man, that he actually is God in the flesh and has the authority to forgive sins, he heals this guy. Now listen, you cannot blaspheme God in one breath by declaring yourself to be God, and then in the very next breath, by the power of that God, who you apparently just blasphemed, raise somebody from the dead, or heal the sick, or take a paralyzed man who has never been able to walk or move and enable them to move. It just doesn't work. You can't blaspheme, and then by that same power that you've just blasphemed, actually heal someone. And notice that Jesus, the way he, the way he heals this guy is evidence of his power. This is not like a party trick. This is not a magic trick. It's not like Jesus said, everybody watch out. And he conjured up a whole bunch of spells or anything like that. And then he went and he, and he said, you know, Abra Alakazam or something, be healed. He just said, hey, get up. This isn't a Benny Hinn kind of grab him and say fire and make him fall down kind of thing. This is just... This is everyday activity for Jesus. You need to understand, friends, this is, this is normal for Jesus. It's no big thing to basically restore somebody's nervous system, fix their spine, do whatever it is they had to do, and enable him to stand up. Now, why is this so... Look, we cannot escape the fact that Jesus thought he was God, said he was God, and demonstrated here that he was God. Why is this important? This is important because of the second point. The nature of God, of Jesus, is that he is God incarnate. And that's important because he goes on to explain his mission. Let's go back to the scene. You've got to imagine this again, okay? Um, Jesus says to this man, after all this has happened, these people have torn up this roof and everything, and they've put this guy back down on the paralytic down on the mat, and he's lying there motionless, looking up at Jesus. He can't move a muscle. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And what do you think these four friends are thinking? Pokes through the roof, and one of them go, looks at the other and goes, what did he say? And the other one goes, I think he just said, I think he just said his sins are forgiven. And they're like, what? I mean, we went through a lot of trouble to get our friend to you, Jesus, to, to put him in front of you. We're probably going to get sued here because we tore up somebody's house, right? We're kind of hoping that you would heal him, you know? Give him his body back. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Jesus is saying, look, the biggest need that you have, man lying there motionless and powerless on that mat, the biggest need you have is actually to have your sins forgiven. And some of you, I'm sure, you know, as Christians, you're sin, but just imagine if you're the paralytic. 
You can't move. You depend entirely on others. The only way you survive is if other people take care of you all of your life. You are desperate to be healed. You've heard that Jesus has this power of healing. Your friends go through all this trouble to tear a hole in the roof of a house and lower you down in front of Jesus. And and he says to you, your sins are are forgiven. Are you saying to yourself, woohoo? Do you really believe that that's your biggest, most critical need? See, here's the kicker, friends. In the Bible, forgiveness is not like an addition to this great life that Jesus has promised to give us. In the Bible, forgiveness is the key to everything. Our biggest problem, according to the scriptures, is what's called alienation from God. We are cut off from Him. We are separated from Him. We have rebelled against Him. We have rejected His authority in our lives. Our sin, friends, is the problem that is at the core of all our problems. That's what Scripture teaches. Look, we all have problems. Heaven knows I've got problems. Any of you who know me well enough, you know I've got problems. And you have them too, right? You're sick, or you're broke, or you're addicted, or you're bitter, or you've been abused, and because of that, you're damaged, or maybe you're like this guy, and you're paralyzed. And so you come to Jesus, and you say, help me! And that's okay. That's right. There's nothing wrong with that. These four men did that with this paralyzed man themselves. But Jesus is saying, look, no other problem you can have, no money problem, no relationship problem, no addiction problem, no problem that you have, no health problem is as deep and as profound and as destructive as the problem of your sin. Because you see, this problem, it can totally destroy you. And it can destroy you not just here, but it can, it can destroy you there in the next life. And, and you need more than anything else out of all the things you could possibly want from me. The thing you need most of all is forgiveness. Think about this, okay? Jesus is going to heal this guy. This is pretty awesome. His mattress. He's going to walk out of that house. He's going to be skipping down the street, praising God. But listen... Eventually, that body is going to fail. He's going to get old. He's going to get tired. He's going to die. Or maybe he walks out of that house, skipping one minute, and boom, he gets hit by a chariot the next, and he's done for. We don't know how long he lives after this, do we? All our problems our money problems, the problems we have raising our kids in the right way, or the family tensions that we wrestle with, all the stuff. These problems, as big and as looming as they are, and I don't want to minimize them for you because I know some of you have got huge problems. Huge! They're temporary. If Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God... The number one problem you have is not temporary. The number one problem you have, sin. 
it has eternal consequences. It has forever consequences. It has ongoing consequences that, that remain after your death. You need to be put right with God. That's what you need more than anything else. Now, this is not popular, not selling well on the open market of ideas in Western culture. How ironic, and I, I'm, I'm tangenting here, so let me be careful not to tangent too long. I'll just throw it out, and you, you chew on this. How ironic that here in the healthy, safe, wealthy West, what I just said ticks us off. I need forgiveness. I need to be made right with God. And that's not a very attractive message to us in the West, but you go to other places in the world where people are dying from starvation or dying under the, the oppression of an unjust regime and you tell them this message, this story, and they embrace it with tremendous joy. Why is that? That one's just for you to chew on, okay? Enjoy that. That's freebie. That's a freebie. By the way, what Jesus is promising here is much harder than the healing. 23 and 24. Which is easier, Jesus says, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell excuse you, excuse me, sorry, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now listen. There's a double, Jesus is kind of giving a riddle, okay? What's easier, he says, to heal the guy or to forgive sins? And of course, on the one hand, to forgive sins is way easier, right? You just say it. Your sins are forgiven. Da-da-da-da. No proof. Can't prove it. Nobody knows if it's true or if it's not. You can just say it, right? But heal this paralytic. You need the power of God to do that. Like, because this guy is either going to be healed or he's not going to be healed. You can't fake it, right? You can fake forgiving sins. But really, here's the thing, really to forgive is way, 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 way harder. What did Jesus need to do to forgive this guy's sins? Does he just say, like, is he just saying, hey, forgiven, off you go. Does he just sort of wave his hand like a magic wand or or, you know, wiggle his nose like that woman from Bewitched and it's gone? If you have ever been hurt deeply and have had to try to forgive, you know that's not how it works. You know forgiveness costs. And it costs dearly. You smash my car, and I say to you, I forgive you. What does that mean? That means I'm not making you pay to fix my car, but my car needs to be restored at some point, so who's absorbing the cost? I am. I'm absorbing that cost. I have to pay for it. It's either you or it's me. And if I forgive your responsibility for fixing my car, then I take it on myself, you see. It costs me something. And Jesus Christ came to do that. He came to... to to absorb the cost. When he went to that cross, this man Jesus, the Son of God, he was nailed to it. He was immobilized. He was paralyzed when he was nailed to that cross, bearing what he was removing from that paralyzed man. 
And he does the same for you and he does the same for me. He takes our sin upon his shoulders. He faces the justice that you and I deserve to face. He absorbs the cost of God's justice and God's wrath against our sin. It was infinitely more costly for him to forgive this man's sins than to repair his nervous system. Him, everything to do that. Last thing, the tenderness of Jesus. I just said a lot of us in our Western culture, we don't like this I need forgiveness stuff. We want to say, I don't need that. And we don't want to ask for that. We say we don't care about all that stuff. But I've had the, the fortune, the good fortune, I guess, of being able to talk to a lot of people, Christians, non-Christians, believers, unbelievers, all alike, like all, and everything in between. And the more you talk to people, the more you get to know people, and I'm sure you have this too with your friends, whether they're believers or not, is kind of irrelevant to this issue. The more you talk to people, the more you realize that deep down, you learn every one of us is carrying guilt. We know we have this guilt. The problem is we just don't know what to do with it. And because we don't know what to do with it, we push it away, or we deny it, or we justify it, or we minimize it. We say, look, everybody's got this problem. It's no big deal. Meanwhile, it tears us up inside. Or we say, well, you'd be my, just like me if you grew up in the house I grew up in. Meanwhile, it tears us up inside. And because we don't know what to do with it, because we've got it and we're carrying it and we don't know what to do with it, we deny the need to have it dealt with. And I know that sounds weird to you, but listen to me. Most people will say this. If there is a God and I have to meet him at some day, at some point in my life, I will tell him, or her, or it, or whatever, I will tell God, I have tried to be a good person. And because I've been a good person, I think I should be admitted into your heaven or to your paradise or whatever. So in other words, what that means is, is they believe that being made right with God comes through being good. But here's the thing. If you think that being right with, with God comes through being good, you will never, ever, ever be able to admit that you're not good. You can't. It's too traumatizing. You will never be able to repent. Or if you do try to repent, you'll try to be good at it. <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll try to do it right. You'll, you'll try to make, I'll ask questions. Am I groveling enough? Am I saying it the right way? Am I following the steps properly? Because even that requires that you are good. Yeah. Having to say sorry ruins you. But look at this story. Notice something in this story. This is utterly amazing. Do you notice that in this story, the guy does not appear to repent? He never says it. He never says that he's repenting. And the Bible everywhere says that a person can only be forgiven if they repent. But Jesus looks at this man as he's lying on this mat, and he says, your sins are forgiven. What does that mean? It has to mean this. 
it has to mean that Jesus discerned this man's heart. Just like it says he discerned the Pharisee's heart, Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. And he discerned this man's heart that he was yearning for mercy and yearning for grace. Even though he couldn't articulate it, even though he didn't say it out loud, even though he didn't spill it out, Jesus in his tenderness, in his emotional sensitivity, was so eager to bless this man and forgive this man that he, he pounced on him as soon as he had any indication and any inclination that this man knew he needed mercy. Here's my point. If you are here this morning and you have any inclination that you need mercy, that you need grace, if you have even the faintest sense that you deserve condemnation, not welcome, just go to Jesus. Just go. Don't worry about saying the right thing. Don't worry about thinking the right way. Don't worry about articulating it properly. Don't worry about it. He is that Good. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's how tender he is. Closing with a corporate application. So this is Membership Sunday. People have become members of Grace Valley Church. Our our motto, if you can call it, I've never figured out what it is. Tagline? That sounds so corporate. Ugh. Life in Christ, Christ in life. Here at Grace Valley, we want to be a church where we find this forgiven, joy-filled new life through the person of Jesus Christ. And then we want to be like Him. We want to live like Him. We want to follow him. And that means we want to be concerned with the things that concern him. Jesus had such compassion. This man was an outcast. He was marginalized. He was, he was the forgotten. And Jesus focused his attention on him and gave him what he needed. He regarded him. And we should too. We have a space in town now. And we've got a big meeting room. Big-ish. Are we going to use that to bless the marginalized in society, the weak, the victims? Are we, going to, are we going to make it our mission to bring the love of Jesus to those who so desperately need it? That's what it means to follow Jesus. But then at the same time, Jesus also said you need conversion. You need forgiveness. That's the hard edge of the gospel. Are we going to, are we going to be bold enough to tell our friends and our neighbors, I love you so much, I need to tell you that you are in need of the forgiveness of God? See, when you do that, when you're both, you will not make sense to people. The secular people will be like, and even the liberal, frankly, the very liberal church people, will they'll be like, you know, they do such good stuff, but then they're always talking about repent and believe. Why do they have to do both? Why can't they just leave that stuff and do the good stuff? And the conservative, very doctrinal churches, they'll be like, why are you guys always trying to serve and care for the poor and care for the marginalized and all that kind of stuff? Just preach the truth. Just preach the truth. That's how you become wishy-washy. 
But if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to be misunderstood by everyone because we're going to be both. What a dream. What a vision. How exciting can it get, hey? But by his spirit, you know, <laughs> I just thought of this. The power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. May the power of the Lord be present with us to heal the sick, to proclaim the good news. Let's pray. Father, do, do all that you want to do in us. Um, help us to see that forgiveness is such a remarkable gift. Help us to see it. And when everything else may be not as we want it to be, when in the rest of our life may be a disaster, knowing that we're forgiven, may that bubble up with joy, cause us to bubble up with joy, stood, because we are proclaiming the multifaceted, broad, cosmic salvation of our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.